This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 855 AM, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Show. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut Babette. Andy and I would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation from whose land we are broadcasting at 3CR and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation where we can be heard at Radio Skid of Row. the Climate Action Show. We're coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at 3cr.org.au. Make sure to share us around if you like what you hear. My name is Carly and my guest today is Tom Lang. Tom Lang grew up on a farm in country Victoria and moved to Melbourne to study science. He discovered science communication through the science circus with ANU and Questacon, worth a look if you're into that stuff, and has been making science fun ever since. He's taught at ScienceWorks in series, performed sciencey comedy shows at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival and designed non-sciencey board games. He co-hosts Not Good Enough, a weekly comedy Hi, podcast Sean, about Australian politics and comedy. Thank you for having me. Firstly, can you tell us how you came to be a science and sustainability communicator? Um, yeah. So, I mean, being a science communicator, it's, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of a, a strange job. Um, and I guess what you guys do here is science communication. It's one of those things that can be anything. Um, it, you, can be a, you can be a writer for articles. You can do radio like this. You can, you can do all sorts of things. Um, and I think the big difference is between being a science communicator and a scientist is both are into science. It's just the science communicators like talking about it instead of just doing it. Some people are both. Um, there are a lot of scientists out there who do their communication. Not me. Um, to, to get around to me, I became a science communicator, I think because I really like science, but I do not have the attention span for doing research, basically. <laughs> and when did you figure that out? Uh, yeah, probably in university. I think I, I really like learning things. I really like finding out new things, but I get bored if I stick with one thing for too long. Um, I... I really like doing, like, um, communicating and talking and being, you know, a little bit creative and, and performing. Um, after I did my undergrad in science, I was like, I'm done. I'm done with academia. I'm done with university. If I sit in another lecture, I will die. I need to get <laughs> out of here. And, but then I discovered that, that science communication was a thing. And I, I did the, um, the graduate diploma of science communication in ANU which everyone in, in Australian science communication seems to have done. It's a practical one-year thing where you travel around Australia teaching science to kids uh, all around the country. And so if anyone out there likes science and is into being a bit silly in front of kids, um, I cannot recommend it enough. It's, it's the otherwise known as the science circus because it's run with Questacon and you travel around doing the sciencey stuff. So that got me into science communication. And I was like, yes, this is me. I'm good. Um, I'm done. Career, lock it in. And so my specialty in science communication is generally um, live presentations and sort of 
stuff like this, talking about things um, in a, cause I, I, I did a big, a big chunk of stand-up comedy for a while. And I don't do stand-up comedy really much anymore, but it's the same skill. It's, there's a lot of crossover. So that's my area. But if you've got more attention span or you don't like talking to people, because a lot of people don't like public speaking, there's always uh, a need for like people who can write um, or do a bit more research or make infographics or, or all sorts of stuff. It's a big, weird field. But, um, but in my end of it, it, it helps if you've got some level of undiagnosed ADHD, I think, is the <laughs> defining feature there. Is that on the But that's another interview. Form? <laughs> that's amazing. You would have seen so many cool things and met so many amazing people traveling around Australia. Yeah, I think, I mean, m- most of the people I met were primary schoolers. So I'm sure many of them are amazing. Um, but, but I think it's mostly just fun because I feel like everyone in science communication is good people. They, they're all people who are fascinated by science. No one gets into science communication for the money. Um, they know a lot of cool stuff. And I, I guess they're just my kind of people. And so also I've collected a million cool science tricks along the way. Very cool. So I guess if we're going to deep dive, mm. what are some of the biggest pieces of misinformation and disinformation you've come across in your career? Yeah, um, so I, I specialize in climate a little bit at the moment because I think that's the final frontier of science communication. For most of my career in the early parts, I was doing that like fundamental science, like what is physics? You know, how does lightning work? Yeah, let's blow stuff up with chemistry. And that's pretty cool. Um, and I think as a society, we, we do trust scientists. Like studies have shown people trust scientists more than most professions, except for maybe like nurses or, or other just nice people. Um, and, and in Australia as well, we're, we're a pretty like non-religious society compared to most in the world. We're a fairly scientifically trusting society. We trust medical scientists. We, we trust climate scientists, but there is a lot of misinformation out there. And, and certainly I think the most pervasive misinformation, I can't really comment on medical stuff very much. I know there's a lot of misinformation there about like vitamins uh you know diets and and all sorts of things which i can't really speak on wellness (laughs) yeah um but but the biggest most harmful misinformation i reckon is the climate stuff and that's not accidental climate misinformation isn't just something that's popped up because it's complicated because everything's complicated Mm. climate misinformation's popped up because people did it on purpose and that's a really tricky one. Um, so, so, and that can be like back when we were first becoming more aware of climate change, there was misinformation around like, oh, does climate change exist? Is it going to be bad? You know, oh, maybe it's caused by solar flares. We're past all that. Everyone's mm. pretty much on board with climate change is real. We don't have to worry about climate deniers anymore. They're such a minority and really nobody listens to them. Um, as a society, also in Australia, like 70 or more percent of people are like, climate change is important and real and we need to do something about it. So I'm not concerned with climate denial. I used to be a bit more. I still occasionally have to tackle a bit of it because there's still mm. a lot of like, oh, but 
you know, how, how quick is it going to happen? But it maybe it is volcanoes and it's actual climate science. Like why the climate is warming is very, very simple. It's you burn hydrocarbons, they make carbon dioxide, it makes stuff warm. And the science there is so simple. We've known it since like the 1700s. Um, mm. it's, it's basic chemistry. The real misinformation now is what do we do about it? Um, and the answer there is, is seemingly simple too. It's stop using fossil fuels. Do alternatives to that. We have all those alternatives. Um, but there is a huge, powerful industry designed to make that seem not that simple, to make, to, to muddy the waters a lot so they can keep doing fossil fuels for as long as possible. Um, and so that's an interesting thing. Absolutely. And I think you make a really, really important point <coughs> that um, industries <coughs> spread this. No, that's okay. This disinformation. <coughs> what other organizations or groups of people do you think are spreading this incorrect information? And <coughs> what do you think the negative impacts are from this? <coughs> well, the negative impacts are we all die from climate change uh, <laughs> <laughs> sooner or later. Um, but, but less glibly than that, basically starting in and look you'd have to check my dates here but in about the 80s um the big fossil fuel companies went okay we need to see what the go is exactly with this carbon dioxide atmosphere thing because we've always known carbon dioxide or we have since we knew carbon dioxide existed basically we've always known that carbon dioxide affected the atmosphere the fossil fuel companies like exxon and, and shell were like okay we need to see is this a problem? How big of a problem is this? And do we need to do something about it? They got basically the world's best scientists because if you're a big oil and gas company, you have access to the best scientists in the world. Um, they got them. They did all the science really, really well because, because even though they can not have our best interests at heart, they know what they're doing. They did a ton of atmospheric science. They figured out, yes, this is a huge problem. If we keep burning oil and gas at the rate we are now, we're going to have really severe climate change happening at pretty much when we're having. In fact, they predicted this so well in the 80s that the, the graphs of carbon in the atmosphere and the graphs of temperature basically line up with what we've seen almost perfectly. Um, they looked at all this. They went, oh, this is going to be bad for our share price. And they covered it up so hard. It was insane. And, and the reason we know this, this sounds like a crazy conspiracy theory, but all of this is, is they've released all the documents, um, all of the internal shell memos and emails and scientific reports are now publicly accessible. And you can see where they've gone, oh, this is a really big deal. Let's not do anything about it. Um, and and um, Basically, they did the same thing that the tobacco industry did several decades beforehand, where they went, okay, tobacco's bad. As soon as the public figures out tobacco is bad and how bad it is, they are going to, A, sue the shit out of us. Sorry, can I swear? How much can I swear here? You can swear. Okay. <laughs> they they yeah. are going to sue us a lot, and they're going to make a lot of laws which make our business very uh, difficult to run. And the only way to prevent that is to run billions of dollars worth of misinformation, um, political sort of fudging, and, um, and generally just muddy the water so much so that there's plausible deniability. 
We can't get away with saying tobacco's fine, but we can get away with saying different people disagree. More studies have to be done. While we're looking into those studies, keep buying tobacco. Um, doctors, some doctors think it's good. Some doctors think it's bad. Oh, there's people who don't want you to smoke. They want to take away your right to smoke. Uh, America loves smoking. Um, they, the tobacco company managed to pull that off for decades over which course millions of people died. Um, and it's only now, in fact, quite recently that we've pushed back against that to the point where we've got like plain packaging laws, horrible pictures on your cigarette packets. You're no longer allowed to advertise cigarettes um, in Australia. Um, you still can in other countries and even to children. So you've still got the tobacco companies who in Australia are going, smoking's bad. We're here to help you quit. In other countries are going, smoking's great, smoke more. <clears throat> so it's very much, they will get away with what they can. And the fossil fuel companies have done the exact same thing. They, in fact, hired the same people um, to do the, oh, scientists aren't sure. Oh, it's unclear. Oh, uh, yeah, okay, fossil fuels might not be great, but we need them, but they make jobs. We've known how bad this problem has been since before I was born, uh, the fossil fuel companies especially, and they have purposely done nothing. We could have fixed it. We could have fixed mm. it 30 years ago. Um, and so, because basically as soon as we solve the fossil fuel problem, the only way we do that is by getting rid of fossil fuel industries and the fossil fuel industries, which are some of the most powerful industries in the world, obviously don't want that to happen. Uh, and so that's what we're fighting against here. Um, and so some of the, um, some of the, the bits of misinformation are so insidious that they're actually taught as environmental lessons. Um, and a lot of you might have heard of the carbon footprint or, or ways to calculate your energy use and your carbon footprint at home, which is often taught by environmental education places. Um, I've, I've come across that quite a lot. It's still used in schools. Um, people like the environment's important. We need to use those fossil fuels. The first and most important step there is figure out how much carbon emissions you make in your life and try to reduce that. And that technique was invented by BP, um, the fossil fuel company, because they, they realized that if they could shift the focus from the source of the fossil fuels to the individual, they could make the individual feel guilty and make the individual feel like they were the ones that needed to change. But the big fossil fuel company doesn't need to change because they're just responding to demand, which is the same thing the cigarette companies did. We're making cigarettes because people want to buy them. If we don't make them, someone else will. We're just responding to demand. It's the individual that has to change. Um, and it's also the same thing that the plastic companies did back when plastic litter started to be a problem back in the 50s they shifted the focus away from the people making the plastic. And they said, no, the problem isn't plastic companies, it's litterers. They invented the concept of littering um, and said, if you see litter, that's because individuals aren't throwing out their rubbish the right way. Do the right thing, put it in a bin, problem solved. And shortly after, the problem is we're not recycling enough. Do the right thing, mm. recycle, problem solved. But the problem is never the companies making the stuff. Um, and so once you, you find out all this, and, and none of this is, is hypothetical, none of this is a crazy mm. conspiracy, 
this is all directly from the mouths of the companies that did this stuff. They said, yes, we did this. And this is why. Um, I can give you links if you'd like to. Um, once you find out all this stuff, uh, it really makes you see the world differently because every bit of information we see on how can we make the environment better? How can we help fight climate change? Almost all of it is what can you do as an individual? Change your toothbrush, change your light bulbs, mm. change, you know, bike to work. And those are all nice things to do, but they are not going to solve the problem. 3CR's annual Radiothon fundraiser launches in June, and this year we're asking you to be part of community-powered radio. It's only with your support that we're able to be independent, community-controlled, and focused on people rather than profits. Your support during Radiothon powers the station to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference, and all donations over $2 are tax-deductible. 3CR Radiothon. Show your support during June 2021. 3CR Community Powered Radio. No, and I think you paint a really good picture of the um, helpless, like, mega corporations, Mm. you know, risk, bad, money, good. And it's entirely PR. Um, Mm. You're no longer, like... You've probably seen ads for fossil fuel and energy companies like um, Shell or BP or, or things like that saying, hey, we're providing energy. And if you think about it, when you see an ad for Shell, when do you ever buy a Shell product or a BP product? Have you ever gone to the shops and said, give me some BP crude oil? Give no. Me some sh- <laughs> no, you go to the petrol station and you get whatever they give you. Yeah. And you never go, oh, petrol, I should get some of that. No, you get it because you need it. Mm. Um, Advertising by fossil fuel companies is not intended to make you buy things because you never go, oh, I could use some oil. Um, And you you don't really even choose between different kinds of fossil fuels. You were already going to do that. It's like advertising water. All of that advertising is there to provide a social license. It's there to make you think those companies aren't so bad, Um, which is pretty interesting when you think about it because other companies don't do that. Other industries don't tend to do that. Like if, if, if a technology industry advertises, it's so you buy their technology. But when a fossil fuel industry advertises, it's so that you don't sue them into oblivion. Mm. So you mentioned some barriers early on, but I'd like to get more into what are some other barriers of experience <clears throat> trying to get accurate science information to the public? Mm. Um, I think the public generally is quite receptive to science information because science is cool. Um, and especially mostly where I've taught it. I've been in science museums. Um, I've been working with schools. I've been talking to members of the public who are all already at somewhere that I'm at talking about science. So they're clearly open to science and science is cool. And, you know, everybody likes learning about magnets and explosions. Um, (laughs) And even when I'm talking about climate change and sustainability, I have never, okay, maybe not never, I've almost never met someone who is like, ah, no, climate change isn't real or nah, fossil fuels are fine. Like, there's been one or two people who've been a little iffy, but mostly people are receptive. 
when people have been iffy, it's just because they've heard the wrong information somewhere else and they're repeating something they've heard. And I even get like little kids, maybe sometimes repeating things they've heard on AM radio or from their parents where they're like, oh, but I heard, you know, climate change was going to help the plants grow or I heard it's not really happening. I'm like, okay, no, that's fair. Um, but, but actually that's not true. They're, they're just, people have heard something and they want to know if it's true or not um, from someone they trust. And if they trust me, great, but there's no reason they should trust me. Um, and I think that is the thing is the real barrier isn't anything about the public. People want to know stuff. The barrier is that they've been told the wrong stuff before um, by often by people with an agenda and whether it's an evil agenda, like a fossil fuel company, or whether it's just um, well-intentioned but wrong, like maybe someone's told them that, you know, some alternative medicine will treat them when it won't. Mm. Um, that's, that's the only issue. And I think that stuff, if someone has really bought into a concept that, that prevents them from learning some science. There's nothing I can really do about it. There's nothing you can do to argue someone around with science. I think that just doesn't happen. Um, all you can do is, is not shut them out. Don't fight them because you'll just make them defensive. Just sow that little seed. Like if someone's a climate denier, you can't say, no, it's right. Here are the statistics. Ah, oh, you're a monster. You can just say, okay, oh no, look, you've, you've, that's, that's, that's what you think. Um, or, you know, you've, you've heard some stuff. That's fair enough. I can see why you'd think that. Um, I've heard this other thing that I think is interesting. Or, or maybe what about this? Have a think about that. But, you know, good on you. Go on your way. Keep doing research. Like, and then maybe a few days later, they'll be thinking about it and they'll come around themselves. People have to come around themselves. You can never force someone onto your side of, of an argument or of an opinion. Not that they're opinions. I think that's a fantastic point because often pushing, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make a drink. Exactly. And yeah. yeah. You can give someone some interesting science, but you can't force them to believe in it. And if you try to make a horse drink, you'll end up getting kicked in the face, <laughs> basically. <laughs> Um, I, I think the answer to most of it is just we need a better science education, a more literate society, mm. and and obviously that mostly means we've got to have a society which wants people to know the right things. That's right. Invest in education. Exactly. Who, apart from fossil fuel company and industry, benefits from the continued spread of incorrect science and climate communication? Um. Well, the fossil fuel industry is the main one and they're friends, um, but also um, marketing companies. If you're an amoral marketing company who will just, or, or an advertising company or personal relations, and you will take money from anyone for anything, fossil fuel companies will give you the money to spread that science. If you're mm -hmm. someone who doesn't care what you say or what bad things will happen, there is money out there. Um, and let me tell you, there is not a lot of money in going along with climate science. There's no secret climate science money. I wish, I wish <laughs> scientists got paid well to spread real science. But there's no money in that because there's, no there's no money in telling the truth. Scientists struggle so hard for money. Um, but, uh, but there's so much money in telling lies because that is something that you've got to pay for. 
Um, and, and every time you see a big uh, like ad for gas or fossil fuels in a newspaper or on TV, that is an advertising or marketing company that has gotten a big gig and a lot of money to make that ad. And that's a newspaper that has gotten a lot of money to print that ad. And so a lot of the media uh, make a lot of money um, from not being too picky about, about the advertising they push. And there is, there is pushbacks to that. Like there's a lot of, you've probably heard of uh, Sleeping Giants, um, which is a, what, what are they? Like a, a, a social movement or, or something. Um, they're an activist group, perhaps, that they push back against um, media outlets like Breitbart that push racism. And they do that by talking to the advertisers and going, why are you advertising on this racist website? You don't want to do that. And once you can pull the advertising, you pull the money. Um, and so there's movements doing that with fossil fuels as well, going like, hey, New York Times, you've got this big article on why Exxon is bad and how they've been lying to us. And right next to that, you've let Exxon put an ad about why Exxon is good. What are you doing? <laughs> mm. And so a lot of that, a lot of this entire engine is people not being evil, just going, oh, it's just my job to make ads. You know, I can't pick and choose. And and so it's it's getting people to go, you can choose. Like you have an option for how you do your job. Most people who work in the fossil fuel industry and there's a lot of people who work in the fossil fuel industry, especially in Australia, um, are not bad people. They're doing it for a job because they've got to live. And they probably don't have a lot of choice um, about how that company does its business. But there's always a little bit of choice. You can always push back a bit, especially if you're in uh, an attached company like a, like a marketing company. You can say, we're just not taking fossil fuel money. Um, and that might make you look better too. I think it's really important to um, remind ourselves that there are, you know, different players in the game because, you know, sometimes you can just get fixated on the industry and the corporations, but there are other important players, other chinks in the armour that you can also advocate for and attack. Exactly. And that's often the weakest link. Like a big industry doesn't stand by itself because if it wasn't for the other industries supporting it, um, it would find life much more difficult. It's like when you hear about people blocking a, a rail line up in the, the like coal, coal mines up in, in Northern Australia, you get one person sort of chaining themselves to a coal train so it can't drive. And that coal train is now losing millions of dollars an hour. Um, so these giant corporations seem unstoppable, but it can just take a couple of people being mean to them on Twitter and suddenly there's a, a snowball effect of like bad PR and suddenly they're having to hire millions of lawyers so they don't get sued. Um, and, and they're still getting sued. Shell just lost a really big case. Um, and that's all because of, and, and I've got to look into that more because it sounds pretty cool. And it always makes me happy when big fossil fuel companies lose cases. Um, yeah. And that's all because <laughs> of little people going, actually, we're not going to put up with this. It was a very good week. Litigation wise, I've yeah. been very happy this week. <laughs> and that's always nice. It's always nice to take those little uh, little silver Lit- lightings. <laughs> what are the future areas you think is important for science communication to focus on? Hmm, that's a that's a good question. I think science communication, the future areas that need to focus. I think I think too many science communicators 
and too many educators in general, um, I can't really speak outside of science, but certainly science educators are too afraid to get into what they see as politics or society. Um, And unfortunately, we've got to do that. We've got to get comfortable. Science can no longer be a thing that's just, oh, if we teach people about science, they'll suddenly be educated and make the right decisions. We just need to teach them the periodic table and what a mitochondria does and and Newton's three laws of physics or motion. Um, that's not enough because something like climate change is not a science problem anymore. The scientists went in and did their work in the 80s. They figured out atmospheric science a few other scientists figured out solar panels and wind generators and bioenergy. We've done all of the actual science, science that needs to be done. The entire problem now is political and social and economic. And scientists are really scared of that. And teachers are really scared of that. Um, often for good cause, because if you're seen as being political, some people might, uh, you know, be able to call you political. Um, and so teachers in schools are still forced to teach, like, they have to cover climate change. Then the really tough question that you can't answer without getting political, when you say, oh, we've got solar panels and, and wind turbines, and that's the solution to climate change is, so why haven't we fixed it yet? Why haven't we built the solar panels and wind turbines? Why isn't Australia 100% renewable now? The answer there is entirely politics. And if you can't answer that question, you're letting down the people you're talking to. Um, And you don't have to answer that by being like, oh, it's the bloody liberals. (laughs) You just have to be able to say, well, there are companies who make fossil fuels who want to keep doing that. And they have a big influence on politics. And the politicians don't always want to do the thing that is best for all of Australia. They sometimes want to do the thing that's best for big companies. That's the problem. Um, And see how I avoided saying specific politicians. And then (laughs) when I've talked about that, because this is a, this is from my own experience, because I used to teach about renewable energy and I would get that question from kids. Why aren't we doing it? And I'd say that kind of answer. And then kids would be like, like bloody Scott Morrison. And I'd be like, you said it, kid, not me. (laughs) You also. (laughs) Um, And teachers, because there's always a few teachers in the back of the class, they appreciate this because they go, oh, I didn't know we could say that. Mm. I didn't. And and that's right. And and that is the, the, the reason. And maybe I've now been given a bit of permission to talk about that because this is what kids want to know. The kids live in the world. They see the politics, and if you avoid the important stuff, um, it's disingenuous. Suddenly, as a science communicator, you find yourself avoiding the truth and avoiding talking about things because you're uncomfortable, Um, and that is basically the kind of silencing effect that this politicization of science intends. Um, Because when climate change became political, when different political parties went, we're on the side of fossil fuels or we're on the side of the environment, suddenly they were able to say, this is political. You can't teach about it. It's political. But we teach about other things like the world goes around the sun or vaccines exist or women are able to drive cars that in other places and other times are political. Mm -hmm. But 
now they're not political. The actual thing didn't change. The politics changed. Um, and if you can't teach about things that are connected to politics, that means you can't teach about things that are actually important to know. Because if everybody agrees on something, it's less important to know about. We don't teach kids how... Now I'm just trying to think of something everyone agrees on. <laughs> the sky is blue. Yeah, maybe we do. But it's not important. <laughs> if, you don't know, if you don't know why the sky is blue, it doesn't matter. You never have to make a decision about it. You don't, you don't have to make a decision that asbestos is bad, you know, because we decided that already. Mm. But the decisions we have to make are the things that people are most afraid to talk about. Um, and so that, I think, is where scientists have to get a little bit more brave. And that mm. is happening. You've got David Attenborough, for example, who for most of his career was very staying out of environmentalism. He just wanted to talk about animals. And that was great. That was, that was good. Helped people love animals. But now recently he's been like, there are big problems. Let's talk about the animals that are in trouble, not just the animals in the natural habitat. Let's talk about climate change. Let's talk about, you know, pollution. And some people have gotten angry at it. Like, David Attenborough, stay out of this. But it's, that's his job. His job is mm. to teach about nature and protect nature. And if he stayed out of it, he wouldn't be doing his job. So, yeah. Absolutely.
And that was the incredible Fortet with so 2017. I, guess, I think you've spoken about a lot, you know, communicators for being to be brave. What is one key message you'd like people to know about climate and science? Um, I think the key thing that I find myself telling people is climate change is not your fault. It's not the fault of individuals. You shouldn't feel personally guilty about climate change unless you work for a big fossil fuel company and you make the big decisions, in which case you're a monster. Uh, stop doing that. But, but if you're an average Australian, yeah, you should definitely try to do the things you can. You know, use less plastic bags, ride your bike where you can. But don't feel like it's your fault that we're in this mess because you have a car or because you've left your light bulbs on overnight or something because, like, the let me just pull up a statistic here. Residential energy use is 10% of Australia's energy use, okay? That's all of the houses in Australia, 10% of our energy use. Um, mining, 18%. Okay, you can't touch that. Um, mm. Most of the big fossil fuel things, most of the problem is stuff that the individual person cannot touch. And you might say, okay, but, but we're buying the things they produce. We're using the energy produced by those industries. That's not even true. Um, Australia's total carbon dioxide, total greenhouse gas we make from our entire economy in Australia is about 500 million tonnes, okay? Um, which is big for our size. But the, the impact of the fossil fuels we export is 1,000 million tonnes. Oh so two-thirds of Australia's climate impact are exports, and you cannot touch that. As an individual Australian, if we cut down, if we shut down the entire Australian economy, we take down one third of our impact. Most of it is exported. Um, and the only way you can stop that is by changing the system that allows it, by changing the politics, by changing the economy, by shutting down our coal mines and shutting down our exports and shutting down the politicians who love those things. Um, it's not an individual problem. It is a system problem. And so don't feel guilty, feel angry, I think is my, um, is my message. Beautiful message, because as you stated before, the personal carbon calculator, it's become such an insidious message and mm -hmm. that seed has been planted. Yeah, yeah. And it's used as a weapon too, mm. where people try to mm. do good things and you might have seen it where you go, yeah, how dare you talk to me about the environment you occasionally drive a car or you own a smartphone. It's like, yeah, I live in, in, I live in a society driven by fossil fuels. I mm. literally don't have a choice about that. If no. you're living in, I don't know, Frankston or something, Caroline Springs, you probably can't ride your bike to work. Yeah, <laughs> you probably right. can't buy a house entirely made out of organic timbers. Um, this computer I'm using right now is 50% plastic and conflict minerals. Like I don't have an option, dude. I wish I did, but I don't have an option. Yeah. I want to change the system so that we have better options. Mm. So where do you recommend people go to get factual information on science and sustainability? Oh, that's a good question. Um, look, I think most of the reliable 
like if you if you just want the real statistics and the real science those things are not hard to find like any any reputable you know the abc or you can you can go to shell's website and get reliable climate science um so in terms of like actually science information and sustainability information wikipedia is fantastic as long as you're not getting it from some dodgy website called like the real truth.net uh, which i'm sure exists i just made that yeah. up but i'm sure it exists um you're going to be getting the real information the trick isn't isn't the science facts it's that that fuzzy of values stuff and that is a little trickier the stuff that gets a bit political um and i'm not sure i'm not sure i think I could recommend you where I get mine, but then you might just be like, oh, he's pushing his own agenda. agenda? 3CR is pretty good. It's very kind of, you know, no one in 3CR I think is paid off by the fossil fuel industry. They're mostly, they've mostly got your best interests at heart. Listen to my podcast, you know, but everybody says that. Um, I think as a rule of thumb, it's, it's a tricky one because you've already got to be open to the kind of information um Mm. but uh there's i mean okay don't listen to any murdoch media how about that that's a good start a perfect start somewhere other than the herald sun and the australian and most of your tv stations um the age is sometimes okay the guardian's pretty good they're not perfect but they're pretty good especially for the climate stuff they've been trying a bit better um Stay away from Twitter unless you know what you're doing. <laughs> like a, it's like a landmine. Like, leave it to the experts. If you're already deep in Twitter, maybe you've got the survival skills to survive. But I would not recommend <laughs> it for beginners. And where can listeners find out more about you and the work that you do? So currently, the main thing that I do is a podcast called Not Good Enough. Um, we started that started that a year and a bit ago during the big bushfires. I was hanging around with a a bunch of my friends who are mostly comedians, but also do some other stuff. Um, One of us is a lawyer. One of us is a computer programmer. One of us is a philosopher in a metal band. Um, And I'm a sciencey guy. And we all went, we're seeing these bushfires. And we've already probably forgotten because there's been several global disasters since then. We've, We've got these bushfires and there's so much misinformation and this is all happening because the government is just making dumb decisions and they still haven't fixed all the problems that were caused by those bushfires. In a few months, we're going to have more bushfires because they haven't done the things they were meant to do. This is not good enough. And there's a few people out there already shouting about how this is not good enough, but we reckon we can do it better. And even though starting a podcast is literally the least you can do, and we're not going to pretend we're saving the world by starting a podcast. We're also not good enough. Um, and that's our motto. We're an inadequate response to inadequate responses. Um, but every week we bullshit about the things that have been happening this week and we want you to learn stuff, but we're also quite funny, I like to think. Um, and more importantly, we have a full list of references for everything we talk about so you can actually follow oh, all of our stories. Beautiful. So that's a good place to start. Um, so that's at notgoodpod.com if you want to check that out. We'll definitely check that out. We'll pop a list or a reference or a link under the episode guide as well. Um, have we chatted about everything? Is there anything else that you want to say? Oh, I always have more to say. This is the podcast. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, I, I, I've enjoyed this talk. I, I 
always enjoy the chance to talk for a half hour. Um, anything else you want to know? Any any little gaps I've left? Oh, I think I just wanted to know a bit more, and this is me just being curious yeah. about when you said earlier, or maybe half an hour ago, you know, um, Twitter's a place you can get angry at people and take people <laughs> down. Who have you taken down on Twitter? I don't in the climate take... wars. <laughs> no, I don't tend to to try and take people down. I think that is a fool's game. Um, mm. If you get if you get involved in a fight on Twitter, that's that's like the so same. No winners. No, it's like mud wrestling a pig. You both end up dirty, and the pig loves it. Um, yeah, there there are no winners there. But Twitter, once once you've found good people, and and again, you've got to be super careful about this because there's a lot of people on Twitter who are terrible but look good. Um, it's I find it a very useful place to get information from. Um, often before it, it's elsewhere, or get a different perspective mm. on information. And occasionally it's fun to follow the fights that happen between other people, but, but absolutely. And, and look, and I do sometimes uh, lose control of my senses and send someone a snarky comment, be like, yeah, if climate change isn't real, then why is Australia on fire? But it never <laughs> accomplishes much, I think. <laughs> well, I think I've learned so much and I've really appreciated your time for 3CR and the climate movement anyway. So thank you so much for your time, Tom. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Some good climate news I wanted to share, hoping that you're familiar with it. And if you're not, strap yourself in. On the morning of May 27, 2021, the Australian Federal Court delivered a landmark judgment on climate change, marking an important moment in Australia's history. The class action case was brought on behalf of all Australian children and teenagers against Environment Minister Susan Lay. Their aim was to prevent Lay from possibly approving the Whitehaven coal mine expansion project near Gunnedah in New South Wales. They argued that approving this project would endanger their future because of the climate hazards, including causing them injury, ill health, death or economic losses. The court dismissed the application to stop the minister from approving the extension, but that's just the beginning. Before making those orders, the court found a new duty it never has before – the Environment Minister owes a duty of care to Australia's young people not to cause them physical harm in the form of personal injury from climate change. The court considered evidence in the case from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the CSIRO, the Bureau of Meteorology and globally renowned ANU climate scientist Will Steffen. In a tear-jerking moment from the Federal Court's live stream summary, the court found that one million of today's Australian children are expected to be hospitalised because of heat stress episodes, that substantial economic loss will be experienced, and that the Great Barrier Reef and most of Australia's eucalypt forests won't exist when they grow up. If found this harm is real, catastrophic, and importantly from a legal perspective, reasonably foreseeable. In decades past, courts have considered climate change to be speculative, a future problem. That is no longer the case. The court concluded in a moving paragraph from the written judgment that, and I quote, it is difficult to characterise in a single phrase the devastation that the plausible evidence presented in this proceeding forecasts for the children. As Australian adults know their country, Australia will be lost and the world as we know it gone as well. The physical environment will be harsher, far more extreme and devastatingly brutal when angry. As for the human experience, quality of life, opportunities to partake in nature's treasures, the capacity to grow and prosper, all will be greatly diminished. Lives will be cut short. Trauma will be far more common and good health harder to hold and maintain. None of this will be the fault of nature itself. 
it will largely be inflicted by the inaction of this generation of adults in what might be fairly described as the greatest intergenerational injustice ever inflicted by one generation of humans upon the next. To say that the children are vulnerable is to understate their predicament. The children took a novel route in asserting the federal minister owed them a duty of care. A duty of care means a responsibility not to take actions that could harm others. A duty of care is the first step in a claim of negligence. A similar duty was found in the Netherlands in 2015 as a global first. In 2019, the Supreme Court upheld that duty. The Dutch government owed its citizens a duty to reduce emissions in order to protect human rights. Other cases around were inspired by that success, including the one decided in Australia. The court didn't say the minister has the duty to stop all coal projects of any size, as was only considering the Whitehaven extension projects, but this is still hugely significant. Australia has been repeatedly criticised on the global stage for its stance on new coal and climate change more generally. Now, we may find the decisions made by the environment ministers could amount to negligent conduct. Back in the Netherlands, something else significant happened this week. The world learned the buck doesn't stop at governments. In what's been described as arguably the most significant climate change judgment yet, a court in The Hague ordered Royal Dutch Shell, a global oil and gas company, to reduce its carbon dioxide emissions by 45% by 2030, compared with 29 levels via its corporate policy. This could, and hopefully will, have far-reaching consequences for oil and gas companies all over the world, including here in Australia. So now we have this dual momentum. Governments need to be careful of what they approve, and fossil fuel companies need to be careful of what they propose. It's important to recognise the work hasn't stopped because Lay hasn't made yet a decision to approve the coal mine extension. The young Australians were seeking to stop her from approving it, and in that they did not succeed. However, her responsibility to young people has now been formally recognised in the court. Today's children are vulnerable to climate change, and they depend on the Environment Minister to protect their interests. We don't know yet if the Minister will approve the mine extension, or if she does whether that means she's breached her duty to the children. But what we do know how significant the harm from climate change will be. What's more, in 2019, a New South Wales court confirmed now is not the time to be approving new coal and every coal mine counts. Today's judgment opens the door for future litigation if the minister is not careful about approving projects that could harm the next generation of Australians. But importantly, it puts the Federal Environment Minister on notice while political terms might only be short, decisions now have intergenerational consequences for the future. Short-term financial gain can be detrimental and have massive consequences for the health and economic being of those show. Science communicator and all-round funny person. If you're feeling engaged after that interview and you would like to do more, we've got you here. I ask that if you are renting or a homeowner, if you're living in a home, please switch to renewable energy. Yes, it's a bit of an administrative burden, but really it takes about half an hour and it's one of the most simple things you can do to live a bit greener. So you can explore the, some of the grants that might exist in your state or city, or you can switch to one of the green providers that are 100% renewable in Australia. You can switch to carbon neutral internet, Belong are a provider that are 100% carbon neutral. So you can surf the net for hours and hours and hours or Netflix binge guilt-free. You can use a search engine that plants trees. Ecosia, again, hours on the internet, plant trees while you're doing it. You can check out Market Forces. So M-A-R-K-E-T-F-O-R-C. 
CES. Market forces believe that the banks, superannuation funds and government that have custody of our money should use it to protect and not damage our environment. Their work exposes the institutions that are financing environmentally destructive projects and help Australians hold these institutions accountable. They work with the community to prevent investment in projects that could harm the environment and drive global warming. I had no idea how my money was contributing to the climate crisis. And when I stumbled across market forces a few years ago, I switched my superannuation fund and my bank to climate-friendly banks and felt much better for it knowing that my money, my tax, my superannuation was not funding the climate crisis. Highly encourage you to check that out. They make switching very easy. The information's all there and you can see how your accounts really stack up. Also, the Climate Council released a report this year titled Aim High, Go Fast. Why emissions need to plummet this decade. Check out the report because it states really importantly that climate change is accelerating with deadly consequences and there is no safe level of global warming. So while action is increasing in Australia and worldwide, it remains too slow and not enough. Protecting Australians from worsening effects of climate change requires all governments, business, industry and community to strongly step up their activities to deeply reduce emission during the 2020s. So I ask you to please advocate when and where you can, call your MP, attend local council meetings, tweet, Facebook, comment, get all over it. We need to make a lot of noise and we need to make make it quickly so that the social tipping points occur and more Australians than not are demanding firm action on climate change.
And that was Bonobo with Linked. <laughs> 